it says early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. This is a quite paradoxical episode in the teachings and in the activity of Jesus. First of all, because it sounds suddenly unwarrantedly tough. It's like Jesus is suddenly out of proportion tough. Basically, if we look at the story from outside and we don't take its spiritual meaning, if we don't take its metaphoric meaning and the fact that it can be a legend of some sort, then it's like uh, the episode is, seems to be like this. A great spiritual master walks by the street and he suddenly has the desire to eat some figs and the fig tree disappoints him because there are no figs in it. Many people say, well, maybe it was not the season of the figs or whatever. And basically then he seems to get pissed off suddenly. <clears throat> and he simply tells to the fig tree, may you never bear fruit again. And the fig tree no more and no less that it withers completely. And uh, that is kind of uh, an inimical to life attitude. It's like <clears throat> suddenly here is Jesus in a mood which is destructive, like he simply is annoyed by the tree and he decides to make an example out of the whole thing. However, this story has many implicit uh, effects to it or many implicit ideas to it because it is related with various other examples and it's obviously that it's obvious here that Jesus wishes to make an example out of this story. First of all, remember that when we think, let's take it on the outer shell, when we think suddenly about the fact that a man uh, suddenly said something to a fig tree and the fig tree got withered, and even the disciples asked, how is it possible that this fig tree got withered so quickly? Uh, it reminds us automatically of the famous trick of the tree from India, where an Indian Baba comes and plants a seed and the tree grows up in two minutes and after two minutes he can just pull it back and make it shrink back into the seed and basically that is supposed to be a kind of collective hypnosis. But as we have talked at the lecture of Shambhavi Mudra in the very mo first month of this yoga course, this collective hypnosis goes so far that it can appear even on photographic plates, on photographic film. And then basically we have crossed the line between mind and reality. The mind is reality. Hypnotizing and figuring something, it actually becomes real. This reality is in itself a mental creation. 
That is why we can say that this is something from the level of Ajna Chakra. It's like creating new realities. I told in one lecture about the story of one of the 84 Mahasiddhas, I think it's the first of the list of the 84, who basically is pissed off by some king or whatever in a kingdom in India, and he suddenly puts his purbu, his magic dagger, into the earth, and the sun stops. And in India, if the sun doesn't set anymore, you are fried. In three days, you are dead because the heat becomes scorching and everything. And people beg this guy, and the king himself comes and apologizes. And he says, look, we didn't know who you were, whatever. Please take this curse from upon us. And basically, the guy pulls the dagger out, and the sun continues to move. But the sun didn't move for three days you are going to say, well, that's impossible. Realistically speaking and rationally speaking, this story is ridiculous. How could the sun stop for three days? For the sun to stop for three days in terms of astronomy, it means that the earth should stop from spinning. But if the earth would stop from spinning, there would be at least two magic, two major effects which would have resulted from it. One, that all the historians, all the chronicles of history from those centuries would have mentioned, we don't know why, but for three days the earth has stopped from spinning and the sun didn't move anymore. And we don't know that it's a crazy guy who did that from India, but we simply know the effect. Or such a thing does not exist in the historical chronicles. And the second thing is that by the laws of modern physics, if somebody would stop the earth for three days, it will result the most catastrophic earthquakes, floods, destruction, the earth would heat up to the level of being red hot, and it would be basically mayhem. You could not stop the earth, mechanically speaking, without creating an absolute destruction on this planet, then afterwards to restart it again or whatever. That's why it's obvious that the Mahasiddha who did this, did it by the mind. It was a kind of collective hypnosis creating a hundred kilometers around a kind of a soap bubble, a kind of a virtual reality in which indeed the sun did not set, but the rest of the earth kept on speaking, spinning and doing whatever it did always. How is it possible that a part of the reality should behave? That's the miracle of the mind. The mind can create virtual realities. It simply can create alternate realities which do not necessarily need to fit logically with the rest. Of course, in the greater economy of God, all these realities fit because it's God who has fit them together as the pieces of a puzzle, so there should not appear absurdities. Sometimes our reality, the world in which we live, has some clefts. If you are very careful and look, you will see that there are mysterious places mysterious phenomena, mysterious signs which show that actually the reality is made of pieces and here and there there is a crack and you can see that something mysterious is beyond. You can see that this world is an aggregate of things composed like this. But that comes from Ajna Chakra. That requires indeed a very high form of clairvoyance, a very high form of spiritual development. And here, when the guys who do the trick of the rope and the guys who do the trick of the tree, they basically create such an artificial reality which everybody sees as real and even the camera takes a shot of it and it appears as real. But more or less, it's a materialization of the mind. It is a creation of the mind. 
basically this story of Jesus automatically brings us to this. Like, how is it possible that a tree should wither like this? It's obviously a miracle of the mind. And that is why Jesus brings it here to the level of the laws of the mind, to the level of suggestion and self-suggestion and hypnosis. He says, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to the mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Basically, here we are having again said, because it was before, we commented on this before, the miracle of belief. And in the other paragraph, here at least Jesus says, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Uh, it's kind of, he mentions the word prayer. It's like, it's by prayer. He doesn't say, if you believe, you can do it. He says, if you believe, you ask in prayer and you receive it. That would involve the idea of God. But in the first sentence, as well as in other parts in the Bible, where I read this before, in another lecture before, Jesus doesn't even come with the idea of God mentions in it. He says, if you believe, it will happen. He doesn't say, if you believe in God. He simply says, if you believe, it will happen. It's believing in the phenomenon. Believing in your power to do that. Believing in, the, in yourself. Believing that you can do it. Somebody who believes that they can do it, they do it every time. Basically, I told you at that time in that lecture that there was a Frenchman who could bend iron bars with his eyes and so on. And when they asked him how he does it, he simply said, I believe I can do it. And that's why I can actually do it. Therefore, the whole thing is believing, bringing, coming to the level where you indeed believe the things fundamentally. Sometimes, this belief needs to be anchored in a deeper reality. I would like to call your mind on the thing that there exist many sects and many weird things, such as some of these American evangelist firebrand preachers uh, in television or whatever, they can stand up and whip up the crowds to some frenzy. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters, blah, 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 blah. The Lord has given and, and people singing and swinging and doing whatever. They fall into a kind of delirious frenzy, which is a form of collective hysteria. And suddenly so much energy is triggered that suddenly you get people who are in the wheelchairs standing up and screaming, hallelujah, the Lord has healed me, and so on. And it's all a matter of belief. It's a matter of belief. I told you so many times the story about that yogi, who was a teacher of, my first teacher of yoga, who took a girl from a wheelchair, and he simply said, what, you cannot walk? Of course you can walk. And he took her by the hand and walked her through the room. It's like, that's belief. It's making believe. This is the thing. It's like, if you can pass the belief, Whatever you believe, absolutely, it happens. Like Peter walked on water, and then when he doubted, he started sinking in the water. And Jesus says, why did you doubt, you of little faith? Because in the beginning you could do it. And then the only thing which came was actually the lack of belief. That is why, remember that here we have a typical paragraph in the Bible, which speaks about a power of Ajna Chakra. How far can this power go? In yoga, those of you who are more advanced, you have even received papers on that. The advanced yogis speak at the level of Ajna Chakra of the famous eight Mahasiddhis, not Siddhis, powers of the mind, 
Maha cities, the great paranormal powers, which are eight in number. And those Maha cities, even the first four of them are completely incomprehensible, and the next four are completely out of proportion. Some of them are like Mahima, Anima, Lagima, Garima, like becoming as big as the universe, becoming as small as an atom, becoming heavy as a mountain of ore, becoming light and flying through the air, fulfilling any desire. It's like some of them are completely out of proportion. That simply means a man can create a universe, a man can do this, can like violate the so-called laws of nature completely. That's all from Ajna Chakra. Ajna Chakra reaches to the point where this manifestation becomes like a grain of sand and a lot of things can be done. That is why these great cities, the Maha cities, have almost never been used by somebody in this world in known history. Some of these things, Allah Jesus, some of the great things of Milarepa when he plays his own trip, some of the things which this great Mahasiddha did with his dagger, they are a little bit on the edge, but it's like the Mahasiddhis are too big for this planet. If somebody, if some of the great yogis who reached the Mahasiddhis would actually start exerting them, it would be like shooting a fly with an artillery cannon or something like this. It's kind of disproportionate what these things can do. Because then even the energy of millions of people, even the reality of a whole planet and even things like this, they become peanuts, they become just nothing from the standpoint of Ajna. And that is why here, first of all, this reference to the tree, also given the fact that we can presume that Jesus has been through India, must have seen the trick of the tree or of the rope or whatever, brings us to the thing of visualizing this as a kind of extraordinary city, uh, presenting things at the level of the mind, showing to people that it's important what you believe. Remember that even the Tibetans have this under the form of a dictum. The Tibetans, who are not so much into the idea of a personal God, although, of course, they have all these tantric deities to which they are very devoted, uh, that's why they can focus their belief, because many people say, wait a second, Kali, whatever, Kala and Mahakala and whatever, in Tibetan Buddhism, if you prefer to stay there, it just means time. How can you be devoted to time? How does it come that some people get so crazy as to believe in time? Because there have been people in India and in Tibet who put all their faith, all their destiny, all their salvation in Kali, in Mahakala, in time. Can people believe in time? Like time is not God, is it? The, the one God. How can you believe in time? This is a matter of having control over your belief. It's kind of, I can believe in whatever I wish to believe. If I have belief, I can make myself believe. And if I lack belief, I will not believe even if God descends on earth and shows itself in glory. And still I cannot believe and I will suspect a trick or some foul game or whatever. That is why the capacity to believe is there. The Tibetans have this story that a man uh, asked by his uh, mother repeatedly, a young boy, a young man who was a tradesman, a commercial, and who was going in Tibet and in China and wherever, he was traveling a lot, 
and his mother was a simple peasant woman and she was a very great Buddhist faith. And she said, you my son, who have money and travel a lot and so on, please bring me some holy relic because in our house we don't have any holy object. I would like to have something holy like some uh, item to put it on the altar of our house to worship it because we have the material possibility to do this. And this son was kind of indifferent to religion and he failed to bring and he failed to bring and many times he said, well, mom, I just forgot. And one day his mom got completely hysteric and said, look, if next time when you come home you don't bring me some holy relic, forget about it, don't come home anymore. I'm not your mother. I have asked you for years and years to bring me something. You are completely defying me. You are completely ignoring me. It's too much. I, I have a simple claim, you know, because I'm a peasant and I cannot go anywhere and so on. So this man goes on his trip and of course he forgets again. And on his way back, when he's just in the next village, he realizes, ah, shucks, I didn't bring anything to mom. You know, and then she will hit the fan completely. She will go ballistic this time. And what to do? He finds a skeleton of a dead dog. He pulls out the tooth of one of the teeth of the dog. He washes it and polishes it and cleans it to make it look really, really exquisite. He goes to a man in the village and has a small velvet box made for it. And he puts this tooth in the velvet box and he brings it to his mom. And he says to her, this is uh, one of the teeth of Milarepa or of Gampopa or whatever, of Tsongkhapa, whatever, one of the great yogis. This is a very, very holy relic. So he lies shamelessly, like obviously having no faith himself, like he was not even afraid of blasphemy. It's kind of, ah, my mom and her silly superstitions. And his mother takes the tooth and she is becoming completely elated with it, puts it on the altar of the family, does prostrations to it, touch it to her forehead, calls the neighbors and other women from the village, look, we have in our village a tooth of Milarepa and so on, so holy, so auspicious. And they keep on praying, meditating, saying mantras and doing things. The young man forgets about it. His life is now peaceful. He has pleased his mom. Now he can do his stuff. After one year, he goes in some other trip. And when he comes back, he finds a lot of people around his home from other villages. And he says, what's happened here? He's afraid there is an accident or something. And one of them says, wow, you are from here and you don't know. You haven't heard about this. He said, the tooth of Milarepa, which you brought, started shining with light. It started shining in the dark. It is glowing with the supernatural light and so on. Basically, you can say it was the tooth of a dog. But faith made it shine in the dark because it didn't actually matter that it was the tooth of a dog. Materialists and so-called realists, they say, but it was the tooth of a dog. People who believe in the power of the mind say, yes, but the mind has made it shine with light, glow with light. That's the power of the mind. It's a virtual reality. It can transform it, and you can be sure that because of this, that tooth had miraculous property by now, and it had uh, probably healing capacities or whatever. That's the miracle of faith. That is why faith is creating effects also in time. This is why, for example, it's a very well-known thing that every single place where a faith has been exerted for many, many centuries becomes charged up 
like we have these holy pilgrimage places, such as uh, Badrinat, Kedarnat, or places like Lourdes in France, or others, where people go in pilgrimage, and there is a lot of faith, because a lot of people exert their faith in that place, that place, even if it was a completely idiotic place before, it changes like the tooth of that dog. It's not a dog's tooth anymore, it becomes a holy place. That is why places on which you had temples, churches, pilgrimage places, and holy places, they get charged up. They are like a place which attracts people's belief. People from those places expect miracles, expect the miraculous, expect the divine, and their own expectation, which is a form of belief, because I believe it can happen right now. This is actually what charges up those places. And that is why the Tibetans are very specific about this, that faith can change the reality, and it can make even something which is insignificant become significant. That is also... The Tibetans have another dictum, a famous one which I quoted for you once. The Tibetans have that dictum which says, if you take your teacher to be an enlightened being, you will receive the blessing of an enlightened being. If you take your teacher to be an exceptional person with some mental power, you will receive some blessing from an exceptional person with some mental power. If you consider your teacher to be a very learned person, you will receive an intellectual blessing from an learned person. And if you consider your teacher to be an ordinary Tom, Dick or Harry, there will be no blessing. That's the proverb, which simply says, even the blessing that you receive comes from what you believe. What you believe makes it possible. That's why Jesus all the time asks, do you believe that I can do it? Who am I? Do you believe that I am the Son of God and do this? And people say yes. And then Jesus say, well then, let it be done according to your faith. That means if you have the faith, it's possible. If you don't have the faith, it's not possible. That is why this faith is not necessarily a faith of God. Remember that the Buddhists don't believe in a personal God, but they can believe that they walk on a moonbeam, or that this is the tooth of Milarepa, or that they have got a blessing like this and like that, and it works. It is from here. This belief is from here, and this generates a lot of things in it. One, it can be a power which can as well be destructive. For example, sometimes people who are mental patients, like schizophrenics, very often schizophrenics and other forms of severely impaired mental patients, they can have a lot of faith. I have seen schizophrenics cutting themselves and then looking at their own hand with fanaticism and their blood stopped instantaneously and the wound closed just like this. I know there was a guy uh, among my colleagues in yoga who unfortunately had a fit of schizophrenia, then he got healed actually is a rare example. And at some point he had a schizophrenic seizure uh, in which he suddenly thought that uh, he belongs to Jesus and God will not let him fail and so on. And he felt that he has to throw himself from the first floor, head down, to show that God is with him. So he cut himself with a razor blade across on his forehead. He simply cut his forehead with a razor blade and then he jumped from the window and head forward on the cement, down, one floor down. And believe it or not, he didn't even break his head or anything. He got nothing. He got away with it. That's the power of faith. But this is a faith which is already misused, dark, 
That means the demon, when he does an act of demonism, the devil, when he does an act of devilishism, he also does it with a mind. The Lucifer, Satan, is described as having a star in the middle of his forehead, which means Ajna. It's again six, but not seven, because you know the number six is a number which is like mentioned in many traditions, like rather symbolizing something demonic, because it's like six, but not seven. Seven would be the divine. And that's why you know that later in the book of Revelation, John defines the number of the devil as being 666, three times six, this meaning like the devil himself, and so on. It's a very significant thing. Ajna chakra is not yet Sahasrara. Ajna gives a lot, including a faith which can stop the earth if you put your dagger into the earth, or it can do whatever, create virtual realities, make a tree grow in two minutes, and make it shiver, shrink again in another two minutes. You can do anything with Ajna Chakra, not necessarily always positive. Sometimes it can be quite destructive, and actually the Tibetan yogis especially, when they speak about the deities of the mind, the different tantric deities of Tibet which are personified from the mind and not from the heart, they call these angry deities or violent deities, unlike the ones from the heart which are gentle deities. Because the mind has a nature which at the same time can create destruction, right? We sometimes speak about diabolic intelligence, don't we? So basically, here you see also an example where Jesus shows the destructive power of the mind, the fact that the mind can give life but it can also kill it just destroys the poor tree, just like this. And you have this thing, never forget, it's about a belief. It's not a belief in God, because remember, the Tibetans don't believe necessarily in God. It's true, they replace that with a belief in Vajradhara, with a belief in Vajrasattva, with a belief in Vajradakini, with a belief in Hevajra, in the whatever. They have their own system of directing the belief to something, to some uh, entities of some sort, and therefore uh, this belief is not necessarily related with God. It is only Jesus who wants to, uh, and people like him of course, who want to harmonize their Ajna with Sahasrara. It's like saying Ajna under Sahasrara. I have Ajna, but I'm not like the devil who has only Ajna and no Sahasrara. I, my Ajna is subordinated to my Sahasrara. It's Sahasrara which is the boss and Ajna which is commanded by Sahasrara. It's not the other way around because then my faith can create anything including negative and destructive thing. That is why I told you in the beginning there are forms of faith which can be hysteric. You have these public evangelist meetings where people throw their crutches and stand up of the wheelchairs and say hallelujah and so on. But very few people had the curiosity to investigate what is happening afterwards with these people who stand up and throw their crutches and so on. Most of them, the next day, they are back in business. That means it's not a divine healing. Like in the moment when Jesus took a man and told him, stand up, go home, your sins are forgiven, the man went home and he didn't fall ill the next day because this was a faith which was in accordance with the will of God. That means this faith was kind of backed by God. It was, it was, God was backing it up 
this faith was something which was in harmony with the divine will. It was in synchronicity with the will of God and it stayed. But like this, you can go to the Elvis Presley church or to the cocaine church for the case because there is one of those as well and pray to Elvis Presley or snort some cocaine and say, Hallelujah, brother, the Lord has healed me. And for the moment you may obtain some hysterical effects like this, which is often happening also in New Age. Some of the New Age people have copied this Pentecostal, Baptist, uh, Adventist, Evangelist type of spirit, fiery spirit like this, which very often is a fake belief. It's a belief which is actually more like a demonic belief. That is why sometimes it's difficult to see, because people say, well... Uh, why? You know, for example, take Christianity. If you say that Christianity is uh, uh, coming from a good message that this Jesus was indeed a divine being and whatever, and he gave a good message, then it means everybody who is uh, having some Christian faith is automatically justified and is on the side of angels. But actually you'd be surprised that in Christianity today only there are more than 3,000 sects and denominations and some of them are completely absurd. They pray to Jesus, but their spirit is purely demonic. It's not having nothing to do with the real Jesus and with the will of God. Just to have a fanatic sect-like faith and to say, yes, yes, the Lord has done to me and hallelujah and so on, is not fanaticism, which is a form of belief. The fanatics really believe. Think about the... Islamic fanatics as well, who do terrorism and they think they'll go in a paradise with 70 virgins or whatever. Those people really believe to do all those crazy things which they do. And basically the fact that you believe, it's not necessarily a guarantee that you believe right and that your belief makes you divine. That is uh, the painful thing which makes that actually not every religion on this planet is what they would call uh, by a term which is institutionalized, Bona fide, bona fide. Some people call it bona fide or bona fide religions, which means there are religions which are not bona fide, which simply means they are called religions. And if you make, a, like it happened a month ago, this world parliament of religions, which is convened every year, you can find members of three different, three thousand different faiths and so on convening there and each one saying, I represent the Adventist Church, I represent the Evangelist Church, I represent the Pentecostals of the Seventh Day of Europe, or whatever. Yes, there are many, but remember, not the faith of all of them is synchronized with the will of God. Some of it is based on collective hysteria, some of it is based on things like this, and unfortunately it's not a healthy faith. Faith in itself is not enough it's just an aspect of power having something to do rather with Ajna Chakra, as I said. And uh, because of this, you can see here that Jesus gives the demonstration of the bitter part of it as well. And he shows that this is a power of the mind. And should you believe that, you can throw the, tell to the mountain to throw itself into the ocean. The things are more complicated. This example is hiding more things. First of all, this uh, parable of the tree, if you remember at an earlier point, uh, Jesus again uses a parable of the tree, and he says every tree and every vine 
which does not produce fruits shall be cut and thrown into the fire at the final judgment, and something like this. I cannot quote literally, but we read already uh, that paragraph. And basically there, when he speaks about a tree that yields no fruit, a vine that yields no fruit, he actually refers to the human being. The human being is the tree. The teaching is a tree. A religion is a tree. A group, a country is a tree. And the problem is if it yields fruits. If it yields poisonous fruits, then what kind of tree is that one? It is a weed. It is a tree which shall be cut and thrown into the fire at the hour of the judgment. So this metaphor that with the tree you shall not give fruits anymore and the tree dries up is almost like an image again of the doomsday. It's an image of the final doom. It's like if your tree gives no fruits, then it is like it is not good. Uh, it is exactly as Gurdjieff said at some time. Gurdjieff said, it is not enough to be good. You have to be good of something, good for something. In the meaning that if you just say, oh, but I am a very good person, but you stay and do nothing, then it's exactly like Buddha said. Buddha said, in the hour of your death or whatever, you shall not be asked what you believed in, but what you did. It is your facts, it is your deeds and actions which redeem you, not the fact that you say, but I believed in Jesus. Yes, you believed in Jesus, and meanwhile you are a pirate smuggling opium and destroying countless people. What use is there that you believe in Jesus when your actions were the actions of a bastard and of a criminal and of a terrible person? Therefore, it is the actions which justify. That's why the tree, the tree is known by the fruits. It's a parable. It's, a, it's like a, an allusive, it's a parabolic, hyperbolic way of speaking by allusion. The tree is not literally that Jesus got angry at a tree, because you realize that this man should have been pretty whimsy. He should have been demonic and whimsy, like a Colombian drug lord or something like this, that suddenly a tree was not fitting to him, and he got angry and he said, May you wither, and the tree withered. It's ridiculous. A man like Jesus cannot do a thing like this just because he is discontent. There is a meaning to this, and therefore remember, the meaning, if you relate it, is that the tree is the human being and its activity, and therefore the tree is withered as a punishment because Jesus says earlier, those trees which are not good shall be cut and thrown into the eternal fire and whatever. He predicts a grim thing. Here Jesus again shows this stern nature of the divine that not everything goes. The tree which is useless shall be cut and thrown into the fire. The tree which is useless, God himself and Jesus presents himself as being God himself. The tree which is useless shall be withered. It's kind of God does not accept uh, this wastage of resources. Basically, you can say, uh, if you want to make a parallel to it, it's like my life. If I am alive as a human being and I live without doing anything of my life that is anything spiritual, it's like I am a tree which produces no figs. I am a fig tree and I'm supposed to produce figs. That is spirituality. To grow up 
to evolve and to reach enlightenment. But I'm wasting my time doing computer programs or whatever I do. And therefore I am a tree which produces no fruits. Not It doesn't produce figs. It may produce thorns or whatever. But that's something else. I'm fact is that I'm not producing thorn, uh, figs. And God is expecting figs from me. The fruit of my life, the tree of my life, has to yield something. I am sent on this planet with a purpose, to make something out of my life. That is why, remember that this also underlines the idea that there is no neutrality. Many people would say, you know what, in this life it's true. I didn't do yoga, I didn't do meditation, I didn't do prayer, I didn't do spirituality, but you know what, at least I haven't been a bad person. I didn't kill anybody, I didn't harm anybody, I have been a pretty average person. Average is not good enough because you are a tree without fruits. You are a tree, that a fig tree, not producing figs. Neutrality is not good enough. If the sum total of your life is zero, it's not good enough. There should be something in the plus column. In your account, there should be something in the plus. There should be some benefit, some growth of your life. At least there should have been a fig. If this tree would have had at least one fig, Jesus would have said, there is still hope for this tree. Today it has made one fig. Tomorrow, with a little bit of a blessing, it might produce 20. Let's support this tree. But since this tree has no figs at all, it's a bastardly tree. It's a tree which is hopeless, and as such it shall be withered. It kind of lives for nothing. It's breathing the oxygen of the planet, or whatever it's breathing, yielding nothing. And therefore, from the standpoint of God, it is useless. It is a life which is useless in this way. That is why, remember that this brings us back to this that Jesus considers, and you will see there is a famous parable, the parable of the talent, of multiplying the talent, in which uh, Jesus simply says that neutrality is not enough. We are sent on this planet to do something to go at least one step forward. Remember that a single fig could have saved that tree. The story wouldn't have been the same, and Jesus would have said, oh, only one fig, may you get dried up because you are no good. It's kind of, it's little, but there is hope to it. There, there can be better. But if there is zero, there is no hope after zero. Zero means just zero. It means yielding nothing. And this shows a very, very interesting understanding concerning the way of living the life. The fig tree is the life of the human being and what it yields spiritually. And the one who lives a useless life ends in being withered. There are a few other <coughs> parallel meanings to this great parable of the fig tree, but we'll leave it there because Jesus comes once more again on uh, a similar example. So, here we remember also the thing about the power of the belief, either it is sane or not synchronized with God or not. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? And, of course, this is already 
ridiculous because if a man is giving sight to the blind and raising the dead from the graves, it's kind of ridiculous to ask him by which authority you do this because the authority is self-evident because if not, okay, I don't have the authority, maybe you have, then you do it. It's kind of ridiculous and obvious, but they try to catch him theoretically, like to catch him on theological grounds. Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did he come, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask why, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they will hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Basically, Jesus caught them with a question in which both answers would have been a bummer for them because these people were living in a falsity, in a hypocrisy. Remember that the high priests, they did not oppose when John was killed by Herod, by the emperor. Theoretically, if indeed these people were religious and they respected the prophet, as soon as they heard, wow, there is one prophet which was put in prison, John the Baptist of the desert, this extraordinary man, he was put in prison by this asshole of a king of ours. Normally it would have been that all of them should stood up and say, hey, king, no further, this, you have reached the limit. Now you are over the top, you can't do that, release our prophet. This is a holy man, this is something of religion, you can't interfere with this. But nobody moved the finger. The priests allowed it to happen, because actually the priests and the other people, they were also angry at John the Baptist, and they were also afraid of John the Baptist, and they also thought that John the Baptist is a kind of usurper. He is usurping their authority. He is kind of, they are endangered in their authority by John the Baptist. And therefore, they are hypocrites. They are actually not consistent with themselves. And now they are afraid because they couldn't say that John the Baptist had any authority. So they simply refused. They tried to give a smart answer in which they say, we don't know. And Jesus, having caught them red-handed so easily, he says, of course, he is blunt on them. And he says, then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. That means if you don't tell me, I don't tell you. It's obvious that here you are red-handed. And uh, Jesus is very sharp at this. As you can see, he is not trying to be diplomatic with them. He is not trying to argue with them. He is not trying to make friends with them. He is not trying to convince them. He simply says, I am what I am. Things are clear. You are a bunch of hypocrites. And the only way here is not that I should make peace with you, but that you should fall on your knees and repent. It is as simple as that. He doesn't want no more and no less that these people should acknowledge their hypocrisy, which is basically impossible. They would prefer to crucify him, which they did, rather than acknowledge that they are hypocrites and fake and whatever. And in this way, Jesus is kind of merciless. He is cutting mercilessly with the risk of creating utmost animosity and utmost enmity and whatever. And he continues with a famous parable. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. 
He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Basically, this parable is amazing again, and it is very, very... Here Jesus brings nothing else but common sense. As twisted as some people would try to make some religious things, the fact is that some people say yes to God, but in their life doesn't show it. And some people may be more rat mouth, you know, like say no to God, be more stubbornish, but actually their life is divine and they do exactly the things of God. And he says, do you think that God is stupid? Do you think that God dislikes the one who says no, but actually does the divine things, rather than the one who says yes, but he is actually a hypocrite and a liar and doesn't do anything. He just said yes to get away with it or whatever. And in this way, Jesus simply brings common sense. He says, realize, there are many people who say yes, yes, we do. Yes, yes, divine. They play ball. They play the religious game of the day. But in fact, they are total hypocrites because they never go and do what they say that they will do. And other people, they seem to be unreligious and I can confirm it in my life. I have seen people around me. I have seen people who did not profess to believe in God. I have seen people who did not profess to be religious. Especially, I I saw people who did not profess to be righteous or whatever and their lives were exemplary, and those people were very holy in a certain way. And I've seen people who had God in their mouth all day long, and they considered themselves to be people of religion or whatever, and their life was empty, their life was a tree without figs. It was an empty life, and basically they were hypocrites. That is why Jesus here turns this mirror directly to the high priests and the other arrogant people. And he says, look, it's like this, because you are high priests and teachers of the law and whatever, and it's valid even today for the great priests of Christianity, the popes and the bishops and all these big people, if you say something, they will excommunicate you. They will thunder on you and do things. And their life is usually a tree without any fruit. They are just people who say, but how religious they are, how non-egoistic they are, how compassionate and loving they actually are, how enlightened they are, that of course you know all that most often it is not the case at all. So this is hypocrisy. These people are like parrots that repeat a lesson which is well learned, but which contains no substance. There is no substance in their behavior. There is no real spirituality. This situation is not new. It was happening even at the time of Jesus and it has happened in India when Buddha came and did his divine mission. He also earned the respect of people exactly by this because the Brahmin priests of his time, they were a bunch of incompetents. They were a bunch of idiots. And then Buddha came and said, what is this crazy Brahmanism, Vedism, where people do some dead mantras and they are just buried in rituals and rituals and people are completely fanatic about castes and 
rules and all kind of stupid things and actually there is no spirituality. People don't get enlightened. People just do a formal religion. But they don't really become spiritual. In the same way, Jesus is fighting with the same thing in another place on earth, in another way. He comes and says the same thing. Your religion is empty. It's a fruit. It's a tree which bears no fruit and you are hypocrites. And he offends them to the maximum by saying the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. It's like you think you are big and the first is the last and the last is the first again in another interpretation. So he says, normally it would have been that you have seen that the grievous sinners, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they went to John and they repented. You would say, wow, what a power this man has that he takes the prostitutes and the tax collectors and he makes them repent and mend their ways, turn back to God. Even this alone should have made you humble and should have made you see that this power, this man has power from God because he changes the lives of people. He changes the souls of other people by bringing them. But you are so demonically entrenched in your egoism that even this, which is a demonstration, it's a fact. You can see even this didn't change your ways and you didn't go also to bow down to John and to say, actually, we have followed your life and we can see you are an extraordinary man. Indeed, only with power from God can a man do such thing as you do. Even then, you prefer to ignore him and let him die and conspire with the king and all the others, which shows exactly what you are. So Jesus, more and more in these confrontations, seems to put the teachers of the law of his time very much on a pretty demonic. He calls them hypocrites, liars, fruits without, trees without fruit, and at times he doesn't, uh, he doesn't bother to call them with animal names such as foxes, wolves, snakes, vipers, and all kind of things, uh, classifying them in pretty offending ways, which of course he knew that their ego cannot tolerate and this will end in a showdown sooner or later. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He loves vineyards, this Jesus, apparently. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned the third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants threat treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the hare, the hare. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, and he quotes again from a psalm, 
the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This parable is very tough. It is again very common sense. That means Jesus always has the, this talent to simplify things. He gives this kind of simple examples. A man had a piece of land and a vineyard and his son went and did this and that. These are so very simple examples. You can see here Jesus applying plainly and fully the law of analogy. Whatever is up is like whatever is down. There is always an analogy between what is happening on earth and what is happening in heaven. That means always the things reflect each other. They copy each other. And therefore, Jesus always brings things to common sense, which is admirable of him, which shows this, that the great truths are simple. And basically, what's the story? Some guys found themselves temporarily owning a vineyard. And because the master was not in sight, they started growing arrogant, like the vineyard is us. It is the same story as if you, for example, would uh, have an apartment of your own and then would rent it to somebody. And when, after you rent it, you go and disappear in Thailand for the next 10 years. When you come after 10 years and say, give me back my apartment, it's very difficult because the guys, the people there, they lived in that apartment for 10 years and by the laws of aparigraha, attachment, their mind, even if it's illogical, feels that this is our home. They got attached to it. They got ties to it. And now you come and you say, give me back my apartment. I have finished renting it. Now I need it. Theoretically, everybody would say, well, take off your hat, say thank you and go in that minute. Because after all, it was not yours. It was by permission that you lived in this apartment and so on. But no, you will get to the point where you will say, wow, it's terrible. The asshole came suddenly out of his hide in Thailand or wherever it was. And now he's asking for our apartment. They forget that it's his apartment. It's the same uh, by this mechanism. It's the same thing which happens. The Christian priests are supposed to run the church in the name of Jesus. But they have forgotten. Should the Jesus come today and ask them and say, give me back my church, I am back. They would not accept it because they liked the authority. They got attached to it. It's our church. In the same way, the priests, the teachers of the law and all these learned people of the time, they had authority. All the simple peasants were bowing down and kissing their big toe. And basically they were in authority and they got used to it. They liked it. It was their religion. Even God coming back couldn't change it anymore. He says, the man sent his servants. Who are the servants of God? Whom God sends back and says, now give the toll. Those were the countless prophets and saints and mystics of the previous centuries. 
and it is known in the Jewish history, and unfortunately it's a thing which hasn't happened only in Jewish history, although the Jewish history has recorded this fact that most of these prophets, Jeremiah and Zachariah and Ezekiel and whoever, many of them have been treated very badly by their contemporaries, by the kings and the priests and these people, and actually many of them have been killed. Don't believe that John the Baptist was the first prophet ever killed in Judea and in that area. No, no. There is a history of thousand years and more of prophets who have been killed, martyrized, treated badly, whatever they have done to them. And basically it's this. God sends his servants and the tenants which have grown arrogant and they think it's their vineyard, they start treating them badly and so on. And eventually, after God sends even more servants, and they are threatened, then God sends His own Son. Obviously, this is Jesus Himself. He talks about Himself. Like, finally, it's showdown. The very Son of God has come. It's kind of... You cannot have somebody representing God more than that, except of God Himself. And basically, the Son of God comes, and these people, instead of respecting Him, because God said, at least my son, okay, the others were servants, and maybe they are tenants, these are servants, they don't respect each other. But my son is my blood, it is, it is my own race, it is my own uh, flesh and blood, they will respect my son, right? And he sends the son, and actually these people, instead of respecting the son, they actually do worse to the son, because then they get this demonic perverse idea. Oh, the master has got only one son. If we kill the son, then there will be no more heir and this will stay with us. We will have the inheritance of this because we kill the only heir to this inheritance, to this thing. What a perverse mind that we are going to do even the terrible things to get hold of this. And of course, the son of God is Jesus and they kill him, don't they? in the story. So actually here he predicts it again. The model is very clear. He knows that this is the ultimate provocation, but paradoxically this is the ultimate compassion of God. It's like God gives them one last chance and says, look, uh, at least when my son is coming, you might be able to remember who is in charge here and the fact that you are just tenants here. But no, their hearts are so demonic and so hardened that actually they decide to kill the son thinking that this will solve the problem and so on. And they kill the son and Jesus says, when the owner will hear about this, what do you think will happen to those people who did this? And he says he will bring, they reply, they themselves say in the parable because it's obvious, this is the common sense of Jesus. Everybody can see the answer. They replied, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Basically, uh, what is implied here is that this grace of God, because what they are the tenants of what? These people are the teachers of the law and the priests, and they are the teachers of what? They are the tenants of what? What's the vineyard? The vineyard is the message of God, is the religion, is the grace. And this grace which was given to them to administer will be taken away from them. So basically Jesus here predicts one of those very provocative things. It's like says, if this religion of ours, Judaism, 
was the only good thing until now because it came from Moses and they all all these things. If you have become bad tenants, okay, God will take it from you and will give it to another people because God is not attached the way you are attached. You you can say, and this was one of the Jewish obsessions along the centuries, that only they were the chosen one and everybody else was wretched and nobody would deserve to take such a grace and so on. And Jesus says, if you are terrible tenants, you will lose the lease of the vineyard. You will simply be kicked out and it shall be given to someone else. And that's the end of it. God can do that. So basically Jesus is warning them, attention, because you stand on the brink of losing your grace. You stand on the brink of becoming a dead religion. You stand on the brink of having, of seeing that the grace of God has moved to some other place, to some something new, that there will come other tenants, which uh, is a statement which is actually substantiated by some other things which he says later. He becomes more and more stern on this, more and more determined on this. And there are some very disturbing signs in history, in the immediate history which happens, which actually show this divine synchronicity that when a man like Jesus talks, and when he talks such a big talk, because he's speaking no more and no less about the faith of one of the world religions, He speaks about no more and no less about the grace of the priesthood of those people. And he simply says, you are not going to be tenants anymore. It's going to be given to someone else. And then what will you be? You will be ex-tenants. You will not be tenants anymore. And basically, he's talking here about a very bitter uh, truth. And uh, when a man like Jesus touches such issues of world impact, automatically there will exist synchronicities and you are going to see that there exist some very strange synchronicities which are underlined. And Jesus calls their attention with a very strange uh, parable. It's a parable in the middle of the parable. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected? has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then he comes back to it two paragraphs after. He takes the same idea. It's like he speaks interlaced like this because then he continues. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but him on whom it falls will be crushed. What is the stone? This is something which you can understand only if you are a mason, a constructor. It's a parable which can be understood only in construction. In construction, when you build cities, walls, buildings and whatever, you have to use a certain kind of stones. The stones which are used in construction at that time are stones which are more or less stones with parallel faces. That means rectangular, so they can be stacked on top of each other without creating inclination of the wall. But then when you cut the stones, there are some residues of it, which can either be polished in smaller stones, again, cut straight so that they fit at 90 degrees angles with everything, but there are stones which are like sharp, like this, which look like a diamond, like pointed and irregular. And such a stone, you cannot put it into a wall. So basically a normal mason 
would say this is the stone the builders rejected. Uh, if you give a builder such a stone, it will say, I cannot put it in the wall because it would damage the geometry of the wall and it's useless. But exactly that stone is the stone which in more advanced architectural science, which had just come up probably in those centuries, is the capstone. The capstone is a special stone when you build a vault, when you build a round dome, a round roof like this, like the churches have or the mosques have or whatever, you build it with stones, it's like an igloo, it's like an Eskimo igloo. It has the same rectangular stones around and around, more and more narrow and more and more inclined, and in the middle to keep the whole thing from falling, you have to put a stone which is the cut stone and which is like a cork in a bottle. It simply plugs the whole thing and makes it rigid. If you pull out the capstone, the whole thing will fall down. So the capstone is the angular stone, is the stone which keeps the whole construction. And basically Jesus says, the stone the builders rejected, it was without value, it was worthless, has become the capstone, which means the most important of all them, of them, the real special stone which keeps the whole edifice. And the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What does he mean? You see, there are some things which seem to have no value, like the stone the builders have rejected, and which actually have done the big job. That means Jesus says, I am the capstone. He is the capstone. He says, you are rejecting me. It's the, I am the stone the builders have rejected. I am the son of the owner of the vineyard, which the tenants have killed, because they thought we'll get rid of it quickly. And yet, this is transformed into the next valuable thing. In the upgrade technology, this becomes the most important stone, although it was worthless before. And it's like a transmutation. It says, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's like a miracle. Something which was not worth anything has now become the capstone, the angular stone, the crucial stone of the whole building. Basically, Jesus says, I and people like John the Baptist, who are just a bunch of hobos that you are rejecting, we are the grain of sand that will stop your machinery. We are a grain of sand in your clockwork machinery, and this little stone which was rejected is actually has become the capstone. I, from the last and from a hobo and from a controversial nobody, I have become the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the one which is really important. This parable is a parable in which he shows exactly the same thing, that you don't see what is important and you're in your arrogance you are sticking to things which are uh, vain and uh, you don't see the wisdom of God. Therefore, and this is uh, that stern warning, which has created quite a displeasure. It probably drove those people mad when they heard Jesus saying this. And I must say that in history, it has offended very often. Uh, it's one of the main uh, points of discontentment among the Jews and Christians. Uh, because Jesus says here, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce the fruit. It's like kind of you are the fig tree without figs anymore. Let's things can be different. That is a kind of a blow to the ego. It's a kind of a humiliation. And it's therefore difficult to accept as such. Uh, of course, 
Jesus meant it in a very metaphoric way, as you are going to see, because he comes back onto that. So they were really mad at him, and they wanted already to arrest him, because they knew he was about them. But they were afraid of the crowd, because Jesus had the sympathy of the crowd, and they couldn't do that. Paragraph number 22, we'll get a little bit into it. Actually, we are coming so close to the end of this one. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those that had, he had, who those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Busy, arrogant, whatever. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. This is, of course, again, God who sends his servants, the saints and the mystics, to tell to people, come to my banquet, which means come to daddy, come at home, come to God. This is the invitation which is given. But people refuse they are more comfortable in samsara than to try to go back to God. They are lazy, they are demonic, they are prisoners of their uh, desires and whatever, and therefore they refuse. For a reason or another, they turn a cold shoulder to the invitation of God. And this is, of course, their parable. It's like the people sent to the vineyard to ask for the tax and the... Uh, uh, tenants, they just shun them out and they say, we don't need you. This master is gone. He's far, far away. We don't care. Just piss off. We don't need you here. And so on. It's uh, the same parable. It describes the same situation. Again, you have the master, the king, God here, who is sending his servants, this time to invite, at least. In the other parable, at least you can say, well, it was the man's vineyard and it was his right. He sent his servants to bring back his right, his due. But here it's a wedding, it's a banquet, it's a feast, it's bliss. And God is sending his servants, inviting the guests. Not everybody is invited to the dinner of a king, is it? And therefore those are honored guests. And those honored guests, uh, they are invited to bliss, to party. And still they don't come. <clears throat> but they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another one to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. It's again the same thing, right? It's the prophets and all the others mistreated and killed and so on. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went onto the street and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where all will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is one of the classical parables of initiation. 
First of all, remember this. There is even a proverb which says it is not for those for whom it has been devised. It is for those for whom it happened. In the meaning, the king had some intention. These, 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 these are my honored guests. He invited them. But they were not at home. Their ego disturbed them, distracted them. One had some business. One had to attend some field. And they didn't listen to the call of God. And then guess what God did? Because they were wretched and they killed His servants. First of them, He punished them. And afterwards He said, Well, the banquet is prepared anyhow. I am not going to stay without a banquet. Therefore, go on the street and pick up whoever happens to be around. And it's kind of the luck of the pig for those people who happen to be on the street because they were not honored guests, but in that night they became the guests of the king dressed in wedding suits and in party suits and so on because the others were not available. Basically, what Jesus is telling to this uh, Jewish priest of the time is pretty bitter. He says, you were to be the wedding guests of my father because you were supposed to be the chosen ones, the righteous ones. But if you turn your ass onto God, God can find somebody else who will send his servants on the street and pick up others. You are not irreplaceable as you might believe you are. That's where your ego has become painful. You think you are irreplaceable and without you, God will sit in a corner and weep dramatically, tragically. Oh, where are my guests? Why did my beloved children not come to my invitation? God says you didn't come. Well, screw you too. I can invite someone else. It is the banquet must go on. The show must go on. You don't want to be in my banquet? Okay, I'll find somebody else to be in my banquet. It's like people sometimes have this arrogance to think that they can condition God, that they can put condition to God. But God is detached. Never forget this. And the detachment of God means that you cannot play games with God, such as emotional blackmail, and I am your favorite son, and actually you can't do this to me. Or yes, God can do this to you and to anybody if you start playing games and making ego games with God. And because of this, saying this, this is again an amazing example. It's a little bit coming hand in hand with the example from last time, which was speaking about the people who came in the 11th hour. Some people came in the 11th hour and they were paid as much as the rest. It was like the whim of God. God was in a good mood and He said, what do you have to blame me if I choose to pay these people as much as I paid everybody? After all, I'm generous. What, are you envious at me because I'm generous? I can choose to do grace. And therefore, some people from Kali Yuga will receive a lot of grace and nobody should be envious at that. That is why, this is what it says, they went on the streets and gathered the people they could find, both good and bad. Remember, the history of this planet has a certain course in the view of God, in the vision of the high spirit. This planet has a certain destiny. Some things are bound to happen. God wishes that the course of history should go in a certain way. Well, you can say, what if there would be no people good for that? Like to make history, you need people like Jesus. Okay, let's say Jesus was an envoy. 
Jesus was special. He came from outside. He was a guest. But you need people like John the Baptist. You need people like Peter and Paul and whoever came after. You need this kind of people. What if such people don't answer the call? Like, for example, Jesus gathered Peter and uh, Andrew and Thomas and whoever, and uh, they were there, but theoretically they are human beings. One of them, or all of them, could have turned their back to Jesus and says, Man, you are a bit of too much of a hippie, you are a bit of too much of a crazy guy, we can't go with you, we go. Then who would have done the mission of Jesus, promoted his message? Others. Do you think Jesus would have stayed and cried and said, Oh, oh, oh my Peter, oh, oh, oh my Thomas, oh, oh, they have left me. No, Jesus would have said, well, those left, others will be fine. I'm going to find others, good or bad or whatever they are, and they will be promoted there by grace. Remember that at times, the history of mankind requires that there should appear some high spirit. In the history of mankind, you must have a Meister Eckhart, you must have a Milarepa, you must have a Napoleon, you must have sometimes people who are tyrannical and bad dictators and warlords and whatever, sometimes people who are spiritual, great inventors, spirits a la Albert Einstein, a la Leonardo da Vinci, a la different spirits who mark changes in the history of the world. How is it choose chosen? Who will become that? It's simply like applying for a job. The, there is an advertising and he said, we need a new manager for our hotel. And 15 people apply and the one who has the best CV and the best qualifications gets the job. That means always when there is an Albert Einstein in the history of this planet, never forget that there were 10 prospective candidates on a waiting list for that. And should Albert Einstein have died or suddenly used his free will and said, I don't want to be a fucking genius, I want to hang myself and commit suicide, then God would have taken the runner-up, the first runner-up, the number one on the list, the number two on the list, and that one would have been promoted as the Albert Einstein of our times. That means when something has to happen in history, uh, the persons who are most fit in the order are simply chosen as a kind of, and the spirit highlights them or not, depending if you are prepared or not. And basically in the same way, Jesus here says exactly the same thing. If the first guests refused, then the, the spotlight has moved on others and others have been highlighted. Good, bad, prepared, not prepared, the show of God had to go on and God can do miracles. God can make the stones talk and move or whatever. And in this way, how shouldn't the divine spirit be able to make some people blossom, transform? It's a matter of grace. If the grace hits really hard, somebody can change in a week as much as some people have changed in a hundred lifetimes. Therefore, <clears throat> nothing is impossible for the will of God. And therefore, indeed, the divine spirit can act like this. Okay, those who are prepared to be the guests, they play smart. Okay, they will have their lesson. They got squashed by the army because they are not just playing smart. They are plainly aggressive and shameless. And then others have been invited. But even those who are invited, now comes the second part of the parable. Even those that are invited 
shouldn't feel too much arrogant and too much safe. Like God invited the first dudes, they didn't show up, and desperately He sent His servants on the street, and He found us. And now we are here at the royal party. Ta-da, ta-da, we have taken the big prize. Lucky us that the first ones were so stupid as to be arrogant and to go away. They lost the grace, now we have it, and we are here big bosses. Look what happens to one of them. One of them was not attired properly, which means basically he was not really fit. He didn't make himself fit for the function. He was supposed to be an Albert Einstein or whatever, but his ego made that he didn't consider, he was not considerate enough, he didn't pay attention, and he didn't make himself good enough. And do you think that God then was stupid and blind and compromising and attached again? Well, what to do? This is my second batch of invited people. And what to do? The first ones didn't come. At least I have this one. No. Among them there was one which did not correspond. God is tough on him. Says you are not prepared. Friend, he says, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? It's like... Still, you don't belong. In your case, you have been brought by grace here, but you should have done some of your own effort, at least take some wedding clothes on. And if not, then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It sounds pretty radical again and pretty tough. It's like the divine consciousness has some very clear limits. And when you go beyond that, it becomes Sodom and Gomorrah. In the moment when you cross the red line, then God can also has a stern nature that can show you what the laws of karma really are like and what means the divine justice and all those things. And therefore, this man who is taken by grace and not prepared, is also not safe. It's, he should not consider himself arrogantly safe. Like, okay, the first ones fell off the path, but I am the new one and nothing can happen to me. Even the new one can fall on the path. And this is a warning implicitly which Jesus gives to the people of the future. He says, okay, maybe instead of the Jewish priests, then in 300 years there will come the Christian priests. But if the Christian priests will not be proper, they can also be thrown in the outer darkness. That means we are not attached here. There is not a pledge that everybody can do whatever shit and still they are going to get away with it. It's kind of God being detached is having an objective love. And this objective love means simply that right is right and not right is not right. It is as simple as that. And he ends by saying the famous one which deserves books of comments but it's the one with which we conclude tonight. For many are invited but few are chosen. This pretty tough principle, it is the principle which always applies even to initiation and everything. Very often, people, I have seen it in yoga, it has happened often, I have seen it in my youth with my colleagues, and I'm seeing it even these days. Sometimes people are coming and uh, uh, being afraid that some people who have been to yoga one month, three months, six months, one year, two years, three years, and suddenly they fall off the path and they turn the back and they just go and lose themselves into the outer darkness. And many people are getting actually afraid by this. They say, how could this happen? Maybe something is very wrong around here. Don't forget, 
Many are invited, but few are chosen because not everybody who is invited is automatically chosen. This simply means it's not enough to be given a grace. You have to work on it to make yourself prepared for it. That is why, remember that there is a pyramid of accomplishment. Above those who know or who don't know are those who know. Above those who know are those who memorize or whatever. Above those who remember are those who practice. Above those who practice are those who also obtain results. Above those who obtain results are those who obtain the extraordinary results and the enlightenment. There is a pyramid of accomplishment. 10,000 start out of them 1,000 remember, out of them 100 practice, out of them 10 obtain fantastic results, and out of them 1 reaches enlightenment. That's the pyramid of practice, and it simply says, many are invited, but few are chosen. That is why you have to take it into account that in the greater law of this universe, everything is depending on how ripe you are in your soul. That means if you are indeed a seeker of God, there is no problem. Remember what Rumi says, here you are in this garden, whatever, hiding behind everything and so on. And he says, many have died searching for you in this garden where you hide behind the veils. But, he says, this pain is not for those who come as lovers. That means for those who come and love God. When you love God... You cannot fall outside. If you search for God intellectually, out of curiosity, hmm, let's see truly if there is a God. Maybe I can become very powerful if I discover God. This kind of mental, a bit demonic, Luciferian search is a search in which many have died without finding it. But this pain that you search in the wrong way and you don't find this frustration is not for those who come as lovers. That means you come as a child of God, you come loving God, everything is yours. You will never be left alone, you will never be betrayed in your expectations as long as you come with the soul of being a lover, of being in love with the divine. That is why this statement is frightening, right? Because it simply says there is a kind of natural selection. Not everybody will run the marathon till the end, or at least not everybody will get to run the marathon till the end in this lifetime. There is a number of positions of winners, a number of medals, and the others are expected to fall off the path sooner or later. That is why, remember, in yoga you should never be afraid or indignant that somebody falls off the path. It happens all the time. There are many people who start doing yoga and few reach to advanced levels and even fewer reach to more advanced levels and so on. You can even look at, in a simplified way, at the structure of the yoga groups. The higher you go in the yoga groups in these schools, the fewer people you find. It's not a coincidence. It's a pyramid-like structure because it's kind of many are invited, but who is chosen? You have to give your own contribution to this because at least you have to dress yourself in wedding clothes. That means to do your part of it. And that is why this sounds a little bit scary, but it is actually a warning of Jesus that this should be done the right way. Remember, if you are a son of God, if you are with your heart, 
you will never be left outside. Therefore, this is the secret of it. The secret for fighting this, that many are invited and few are chosen, is the heart. It is to come as lover. If you just come as a uh, Hercule Poirot, the investigator, to investigate a little bit the mystery of God, you might bite the dust and not find, because you are searching in a dry way, in a mental way. You are searching without a heart. You are searching without a soul. You have to search in that way in which you stay on the path. There are many, many things here, because surely uh, this... uh, explains a lot of the hidden laws of the universe, how are different personalities selected by the mysterious hand of history, how do some people become spiritualized, why a Milarepa becomes a Milarepa, what kind of forces are at work, and they show you that actually when you are doing the right thing, you are somehow supported. The servants of the king, they come and prepare you for the banquet, the servants of the king would be here, the angels, right? And therefore, when you are the person who is fit, the angels are helping you to evolve, to develop. That's why in Kali Yuga, we don't have so many spiritual practitioners. But these spiritual practitioners in Kali Yuga, they receive a lot of help, precisely because it's Kali Yuga, precisely because there are so few of them left, and precisely because the history needs. Remember that Jesus said somewhere earlier, The harvest is big and there are not enough workers in the field. Pray that God will send workers in the field. It's like you can say the same. If indeed we are on the brink of Kali Yuga, Satya Yuga, there is a lot of harvest to be done. If Satya Yuga indeed comes in a matter of eight years or whatever, even if not come, just like black and white, gradually, but still then automatically you can say this mankind in the next 10 years, 20 years, whatever, will have to change a lot, will have to spiritualize a lot. And who do you think will help mankind to spiritualize itself a lot? You have guessed, people like you, because if not you, then who? You are the workers in the field. Because at least unlike others, you are interested in spirituality and you are making some efforts to become better human beings and to become spiritual. And then there is a waiting list and those of you which are on top of that waiting list, good or bad, from the corners of the street or not, are going to be taken to the banquet of the king. Because that's what we have, that's how we proceed. And therefore... Remember that sometimes when exceptional events come in history, the divine consciousness out of emergency may do amazing things and there can be a lot of grace. Remember, if suddenly this planet will need a lot of spiritual transformation, the people who have some knowledge of spirituality, the people who have some faith, some purity, some arousing of the chakras, some belief in God and some other things, they can be called to provide that service because they are the only guests available and the king wants the show to happen. And if the king wants the banquet to happen, even everybody can be promoted to that level. And that is why, uh, remember that in times of historical emergency, in times of historic change, a lot of grace can be overwhelmed on over 
poured on people uh, and that simply means that sometimes it is a great grace. It's also a great challenge, I must admit. The times in which we live are not easy. They are a great challenge. But there is also a great grace because suddenly your practice can be multiplied hundredfold by grace. And then you see, wow, I have reached to be like the new Milarepa, but I have done only one hundred of the yoga which Milarepa did. How comes that I doing a hundred times less yoga than Milarepa, here I am doing what Milarepa did. It's simply because God needed somebody to do that, and you are the best qualified person, and the rest you did one percent, and God added with the grace the other ninety-nine percent, because nothing is impossible for God, remember. That is why it is important to do your spiritual effort to be the right person at the right place, because especially in crucial times, remember when history changes radically, miracles happen. Try to think in the time of Jesus. Jesus came and he produced a rift in history, a radical change. And then suddenly some fellows who were fishermen in Capernaum and copper beaters in some silly village, they suddenly became the apostles, the most holy of the holy, the people who created a new religion. What a transformation from a fisherman to an apostle, to one of the twelve who has changed the history of the West. This kind of things can happen only in times where the history is radical. There is a story you are going to see even later, because as you know probably at least roughly, one of the twelve apostles fell. It is the famous, the infamous Judas who fell off. And basically, after this has happened, there were left only eleven apostles. They are not twelve anymore, because Judas was one of the twelve and fell off. And you know what happened? These guys who were eleven now, Peter and all the others, they knew that they were supposed to be twelve, because this is a sacred number. And of course, you know already a lot of things about the symbolism of the number twelve. And they knew they should be twelve. And therefore, they had to choose another one. And how did they choose? There were two partners. There were two contenders. There were two who were there. A guy called Bartholomew and a guy called I don't know what. I don't even remember. There you find them in the facts, in the Acts of the Apostles. And how did they choose? You won't believe it. They threw dice. They simply threw dice. What a dice cast was that? which two people were standing there, and one of them was to become of the, one of the apostles. And then five days later, there comes the Pentecost, the day of the Enlightenment, when those twelve apostles, including the guy who was coming in the eleventh hour, the guy who just won the dice five days before, all twelve of them reached Enlightenment. Isn't this the luck of the pig, that the guy just played some dice and was chosen to be one of the twelve and then he was hit by enlightenment. It's kind of God is really whimsy and has a very peculiar sense of humor, doesn't he? And therefore, in this way, this is why I say the grace is sometimes, if there was need to be twelve, here is one who was played by the dice and he took the prize. What a cast of a dice was that? Try to think. Try to think what was... what. What thought the other guy who missed the loss of the dice, when five days later the guy who won the dice game became also enlightened. It's kind of beyond proportion. Beyond proportion. That's why it's difficult to understand the nature of God. You have to meditate a lot to be able to 
have an insight in the miraculous nature of God. It will be enough for tonight. If you have any particular questions, or particular question or issue or others, I'll gladly spend a few minutes on it, and then we can stop for tonight. He was what?